Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's remarks at a rally on Saturday, saying that he would let Russia or Putin do, quote, whatever the hell they want to any NATO member who does not meet defense spending targets. Joining us to discuss the alarm in Europe in contrast to the weaseling from Republican Senator Rubio and agreement with Trump from Senator Cotton is Joshua Schifrinson, a professor at the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies and during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. He's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. Then we'll look into the glaring example of Putin's hold over Trump, with the wannabe despot sucking up to the murderous despot for reasons that should be a priority for investigative journalists and democratic strategists alike. Joining us is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Then finally, we'll assess how close Pakistan is to economic collapse and civil war with a stinging rebuke to the army's control over domestic politics in an election where the jailed former leader who fell out of favor with the army just won a majority of 102 seats in parliament compared to the nearest rival party with 73 seats. Joining us is Shuja Nawaz a native of Pakistan who has worked as a journalist, a television producer, and a political and strategic analyst. He is the founding director and distinguished fellow of the South Asia Center at the Atlantic Council and the author of Cross Swords, Pakistan, Its Army, and the Wars Within. And his latest book is The Battle for Pakistan, The Bitter U.S. Friendship and a Tough Neighborhood. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep Background Briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Joshua Schiffenson, who's a professor at the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. And he's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Schiffenson. Thank you very much. So speaking of the durability of NATO, over the weekend on Saturday, Donald Trump really (laughs) undermined NATO in an amazing way. In a campaign talk that he was giving, he basically, he said he would let Russia do, quote, whatever the hell they want to any NATO member that doesn't meet spending guidelines. So I take it that the reaction in Europe has been pretty severe over here. Republican senators like Tom Cotton and even Marco Rubio have played it down. But how's it playing in uh, Europe? Well, obviously, we're still learning how the Europeans are going to treat this thing. 
But they've been worried about the possible advent of a second Trump administration basically since the day Trump left office. And these comments are only going to supercharge that concern. We've already seen, for example, uh, statements out of the Polish foreign ministry and other European allies, particularly vulnerable states along along NATO's uh, eastern flank, expressing real worries that the U.S. might in fact follow through on this threat if Trump were to come back to office. And in turn, it's driving many European countries to really look to their own ramparts, to think ways about ways of limiting their dependence on the United States and really looking to pursue a more autonomous uh, security posture. So I guess the kindest way to look at it would be that since NATO is not an alliance based on dues, that Trump uh, sees it uh, like he does, you know, uh, his properties, his golf courses, that, you know, if you're a member of my country club and you don't pay your dues, you're not allowed to use the spa or the tennis courts. That's possibly an, an excuse or an explanation. But on the other hand, it's equally possible, in fact, if not more possible, that Trump is basically doing what his boss, Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin, tells him to do. I mean, that the suspicions have been swirling around for so long, and I'm quite frustrated as to why it is that we can't have a proper discussion about it, or at least a real inquiry, which we did. It started out with the Mueller report, but that got sidelined by Bill Barr. Well, I, 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 I certainly sympathize with that perspective, and I think it is worth certainly investigating the uh, Russian and other countries' influence on uh, the Republican Party on, under Donald Trump. I think the other question, though, is that even if uh, Putin or anyone else isn't pulling the strings directly, uh, what are the consequences of the U.S. for its own reason, or at least like Donald Trump for their own reasons, espousing views that are consistent with Russian or Chinese interests? You know, when it comes to European security, I think having a more autonomous and independent Europe is probably a good thing for the United States. But bludgeoning, blackmailing, uh, threatening the allies, the current allies, to get to that outcome is not a route to success. You know, the U.S. has to thread a needle here. It has to both encourage uh, the allies to stand up more and do more uh, for themselves, while at the same time not so antagonizing them that whatever comes afterwards is, is incompatible with American interests. But surely this couldn't be happening at a worse time, given the situation in Ukraine, uh, where things are in flux, this new military leadership there, the Senate, Trump basically shut down the bill, the immigration bill. Right. Now they're trying to get right. money separately for Ukraine, uh, Israel, and Taiwan. There's no question that this is, timing is incendiary, isn't it? Oh, yes. The, the, the timing, if I'm sitting in Europe, is really awful one of the worst possible uh, situations you could think of. And uh, to, to your point, if the U.S. is going to be able to, uh, re- regardless of what the U.S. hopes to accomplish when it comes to Ukraine, Taiwan, and others, if the U.S. hopes to see a positive outcome, it needs to have steady political leadership, it needs to have steady uh, engagement with the current partners just to obtain its objectives. So the timing of these statements and the injection of uncertainty of what the U.S. will do, might do, can do, uh, really could not come at a worse time, as you said. So given that the European leaders have to be a little bit rattled by this and the German foreign minister, the Green Party leader, she right. <laughs> she said, uh, quoting, I guess, the Three Musketeers, she said, one for all and all for one. That's 
right. <laughs> the, how they right. see it. And, of course, you've got Sweden and Finland joining NATO. So right. what's your sense then of are they going to address the money issue just to put at least Trump to rest? I mean, I imagine they've all come to the conclusion, have they not, that if Trump is elected president again, not that his first time around was it was a little murky to say the least and definitely some right. help from Putin but assuming that he w- would be reelected again this time probably with a lot more help from Putin i think they've concluded have they not that he would pull out of nato well i i i think trump is um when it comes to what trump wants out of nato i i, I think you're initial instinct that this is something of a shakedown exercise, that Trump wants to treat these people like members of his country club, uh, is correct. So I don't necessarily think Trump wants to pull the U.S. out of NATO per se. I think Trump wants the U.S. to do a lot less for NATO or certainly wants to reduce U.S. burdens within NATO uh, and therefore really wants to pressure the Europeans to both pay more, as he wants to say as well as just do more for, for their security affairs. And that, the fact that that happens to be consistent with Vladimir Putin's own desire for a less prominent U.S. presence in Europe is truly tragic and unfortunate. You know, the other, the other point here, though, is that the German responses, the all-for-one, one-for-all, the notion that the Europeans will somehow step up and do more, um, you know, it's a real problem here because the Germans and many of the other European allies just haven't increased defense spending. They didn't really do it in Trump's watch. They haven't done it even in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So there's this other lingering question here, which is even if whether it's Trump or Biden or whomever wants to reduce the U.S. presence in Europe for whatever the reason or wants the European allies to step up and do more for whatever the reason, how exactly to get that outcome is increasingly unclear. So not only do we not know, uh, obviously, what Trump would do if he were to come back to office with Putin's help or not, but it's not even clear what would, obt- what would result in the outcomes he wants to see, he, he wants to obtain. But the Germans are stepping up to the plate in terms of taking care of the massive flow of refugees from Ukraine, and that's costing yes, the I, government yes. quite a bit. And then there's, and there's that, a right-wing backlash against it as well. Correct. Correct. And so there's, there's a broader question here. How do we count security contributions? Right? What does it mean to do something for NATO? Um, I think much of the conversation has focused on NATO's uh, hard military capabilities. And there's a legitimate debate over whether that's the best way of looking at the matter. I, I think it would actually be a very healthy interna- uh, national conversation, perhaps international conversation, to systematically look at what countries are contributing to allied collective defense however you would define it, broadly or narrowly. But it seems to me that the Republicans are disingenuous, and particularly the Marco Rubios and company, who, you know, let's face it, the only thing that is bipartisan in this country now is giving money to the Pentagon. And right. the $60 billion that's in that $90 billion package includes Israel and Taiwan and humanitarian aid for the Palestinians. That money, at least the $60 billion, and this, I think, is a failure on the part of Biden to tell the American people that 90% of this money is spent in the United States. This, this is just right. w- welfare again for the military-industrial complex. And, you know, the defense budgets are going to go up, and nobody's going to complain about right. that. I mean, and, of well, course, so Russia's the, turning the, into a military-industrial complex, or they're reviving the Soviet military-industrial right. complex, and it's becoming a garrison state, and that is how right. Putin's going to stay in power. 
Well, so there there are two different issues that I think you're uh, speaking to, and both are worth really enunciating, right? The, the first is the cynicism of the Republican Party here. As you noted at the outset, even uh, believers in a robust American international presence like Marco Rubio, like Tom Cotton, have been notably, noticeably um, quiet when it comes to Trump. You know, Lindsey Graham, John McCain's best friend, basically rolled his eyes at Trump's comments and pretending that there was nothing going on here. So this is deeply cynical politically, because on the one hand, you have a Republican Party that's both uh, afraid of Trump, but also trying to ride to power on his coattails, even though the substantive views of many of the Republican officials who are empowering, enabling Trump, are really at odds with what Trump is publicly proclaiming. So there's a deep cynicism there. And the second uh, deep cynicism that, that, that you rightly captured is, is that the military assistance that is going to Ukraine, Taiwan, Israel, and beyond um, benefits, benefits these other countries as well as being a spending force inside the United States. And it's a real shame that we're talking about $60 billion, uh, for other countries as if it's chump change when, in fact, it's large in the U.S. Department of Education's budget. You know, there's actually a real reevaluation of American priorities when it comes to defense and international affairs versus domestic spending. And both Biden and Trump, if you recall, in 2020, ran, ran for office on these issues. So do you think then, well, let's let's focus on Ukraine and the extent to sure. which they're in a, having a difficult time now with a change of leadership in the military. And we, know, we just don't know how that's going to play domestically inside Ukraine mm-hmm. because apparently Zaluzny was very popular. And right. there's all kinds of references now to a political struggle, which is the last thing yes. you need in a war. I'm not sure that, again, the Western coverage of what's happening in Ukraine quite often is not... Has captured that. I just don't yeah. think they're, they're particularly reliable. But in any case, what's your sense then of this critical moment for Ukraine? And, and can the Europeans pony up more? Or, or do you think there's a chance for them? The Senate's been working overtime. They're obviously frustrated by Rand Paul. Right. who, by the way, hand-carried a secret letter or package to and handed it over to Putin in the Kremlin from Trump. I mean, here we are right. wondering whether what the hell's going on with Trump and Putin, you know. And Putin, uh, right. What's the relationship? Right. And then here you've right. got Senator delivering stuff to Putin it's a, as a back channel. I mean, it's just the right. whole thing is really suspicious to me. Oh, no, I, I agree that there's lots to be unpacked in this relationship, and we're going to be digging into it uh, for generations at this point. But to the question of Ukraine, you asked, the, you asked whether uh, if the U.S. doesn't step up, will the Europeans do more? If the U.S. does step up, you, can, the Europe, can the Ukrainians hang in given their political difficulties? You know, I, I, I think the deeper question right now in the U.S. and in Europe is, is not whether another tranche of funding will be obtained for Ukraine. That's certain. I, I ultimately think the Senate will uh, provide that funding to Ukraine. But what is sustainable for Ukraine from the West broadly defined over the long haul? And there, I think, we're really seeing the limits of Western support for Ukraine, the Western largesse for Ukraine, regardless of whether it's spent uh, inside the U.S. and then shipped to Ukraine or inside Europe and then shipped to Ukraine or not. I think there's a growing sense that we are reaching uh, that, that, that funding levels for Ukraine are going to drop one way or another. And that, in turn, is going to probably harm Ukraine's battlefield fortunes, which is in turn going to exacerbate Ukraine's domestic political struggles. 
So if we're thinking strategically two steps ahead of the issue here, the conversation we in the U.S., we in Europe need to be having at this time is what's a sustainable level of long-term support support for Ukraine? And above all, how do we make Ukraine itself resilient, self-sustaining self, uh, when it comes to defense against Russia if uh, over the medium to long term, Western aid is going to be an increasing question mark? So that's the debate we need to be having inside the U.S. right now. And I just don't sense anyone in the Biden administration or Trump or Trump campaign uh, talking along these lines. Well, apparently the Ukrainians are doing everything they can to boost their own military uh, production base. Right. That's right. And, and if if we were strategic about it, we would actually be using foreign assistance to, to help the Ukrainians in that process. You know, instead of giving or facilitating, I should say, uh, direct military support, we could be looking into how to uh, revitalize the Ukraine defense industrial base, which we should remember used to be a real going concern in Soviet times. You know, so presumably some of the industrial capacity, some of the engineering know-how, some of the smarts that were that, that were around are still lying around somewhere. So boosting Ukrainian uh, defense industry should actually be a focal point of American and European efforts. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Joshua, what can be done, though, in terms of educating the American people to the extent that Trump is just a reckless buffoon and it's unbelievable that he has support anywhere, let alone even some pollsters have him ahead of Biden. So can right. is there any way that pe people can understand that NATO is not a freeloading operation and what's happening in Ukraine as, as Bill Burns, who's considered our leading diplomat and now the head of the CIA, said right. know, this is possibly the most historically significant moment whether or not Ukraine prevails or Russia prevails. And so much fate of our future hinges on that. And it is a big question, you know, whether we're going to have a world run by gangsters like Putin and Orban and Erdogan, you know, in league with a wannabe gangster, Donald Trump. It's a frightening prospect. And I don't believe that the American public have their hands around it. And I don't believe... Biden and company are really providing that warning. Right, right. Well, so, so I, I think there are several different dynamics going on here. You know, one is the question of what is the vital U.S. interest in this day and age? You know, the U.S. went into Europe after 1945 with, uh, with confidence, recognizing the Soviet threat was a real going geopolitical and ideological struggle. I think there's a sense that Europe has de declined in importance, whereas East Asia and other parts of the world have risen in importance. A second question is how do we think about bolstering or not bolstering, or how do we think about uh, preserving those elements of the post-45 system that have that continue to value, that continue to reinforce American interests, American values, American principles in the world, and reform those that may have outlived their usefulness. I think that's part of the debate Biden and Trump have been grappling with, this, this balancing act that, that uh, happens whenever power changes hands, strategy changes, and there are domestic concerns as well. And then finally, how do we educate the American public? How do you actually engage in a forthright conversation about international priorities and grand strategy, national security, at a time when political polarization is also clogging uh, the newsfeed and making it harder and harder to have a, have a forthright dialogue? I think it puts a premium on uh, the media stepping up and asking the hard questions. I think it puts a premium, too, on having uh, accurate reporting from think tanks and government agencies on 
what exactly is uh, the U.S. doing in the world? What are other countries doing in the world? And lastly, it puts a premium on being clear-eyed on what the U.S. can and can't achieve in the world, because I do think that one of the things we're struggling with right now is the, the sheer scope and span of America's presence in the world has made everything everywhere seemingly vital to American national security. And, and I believe there are many things in the world that are deeply important to U.S. national security, but not everything everywhere has to be equally vital. So streamlining and focusing on what's vital versus what's simply important will provide time and space to have that dialogue and help the American people think through the very hard issues that the U.S. is facing uh, over coming generations. Well, Joshua Schiffenson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me again. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Schiffenson, who's a professor at the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Maryland. His research focuses on U.S. grand strategy, the durability of NATO, U.S. relations with its allies during and after the Cold War, and the rise of China. And he's the author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the latest glaring example of Putin's holdover Trump with the wannabe despot sucking up to the murderous despots for reasons that should be a priority for investigative journalists and democratic strategists alike. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott. And on Saturday at a rally, Donald Trump said that he would let Russia do, quote, whatever the hell they want to any NATO member that doesn't meet the defense spending targets. And what I don't understand is that why it is that we can't focus. Why, for example, investigative journalists and democratic strategists can't focus on what is so... This is just another glaring example of Putin's holdover Trump with the wannabe despot sucking up to the murderous despot? Well, I, I would say this is, uh, again, it shows sort of the frivolous nature of media coverage of presidential elections in general. But here you're talking about um, probably the most serious issue that we have in the campaign on, uh, on the national security front, uh, and that is uh, the U.S. commitment to the Atlantic Alliance uh, and the uh, confrontation um, in Ukraine, uh, and whether the U.S. is going to continue to lead uh, the NATO alliance uh, in connection with this conflict and others involving Russia. Um, and the attitude of the American media seems to be to downplay almost everything Trump says, to dismiss it as, well, he doesn't really mean that. It's just a question of uh, NATO members paying their dues. So I think if we stop first, uh, we can say that uh, the number of NATO nations 
uh, on the front line with Russia who are not meeting the 2% um, expenditure commitment for security is zero. They're all meeting that commitment. So what is he talking about here? Uh, what he's talking about is he, wa is he wants to send a signal to Putin that he can proceed with his irredentist claims to take other nations. And he wants to send a signal to the NATO nations uh, that they can't count on the United States and the United States NATO commitment. Those are huge issues, uh, which I just don't see being addressed very seriously by most of our broadcast media. But the Europeans get it, right? I think so. So I think if, if you look at the, after his uh, speech in South Carolina, if you look at the coverage in American media and then compare it with European media, and I'm thinking of publications like La Repubblica and Stampa in Italy, Süddeutsche Zeitung, Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung in Germany, um, Le Monde in France, the major Scandinavian papers, the major papers in the UK, starting with Rupert Murdoch's own times, they all get it. They all see this is a clear refutation of NATO by um, by Trump, uh, and they're all drawing the same conclusion, which is we that Trump is telling us he cannot count on the United States as an ally, and we therefore have to completely restructure our defense. We can't premise it on NATO, which is an alliance that the U.S. leads. Uh, we're going to have to do some new structures. So for them, this is a very dramatic, very serious thing. It's a repudiation of an alliance system that has stood since the end of World War II. And it's happening at a time when the Senate is desperately trying to pass an aid bill for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan up against a lot of opposition, uh, not to mention in the House at the time when Putin is using this ridiculous fellow that got fired from Fox uh, as a propagandist, and at a time when Ukraine desperately needs help as it's undergoing a shakeup with military leadership. So it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that this is all about helping Putin out. And I'm sure Putin, I mean, the way that they've faded Tucker Carlson on Russian state media is, you know, and Putin himself is basically confident that he can wait out the Western NATO on Ukraine. And I think his confidence comes largely from his hope and expectation that Trump will be reelected. And I'm sure he'll do everything he can through active measures to get Trump reelected. In effect, you could make a case that Putin's helping Trump against Hillary Clinton in 2016 was basically a, a rehearsal. I, I think that's right. I, I think um, in, in some, the, there has been a strong Russian influence operation uh, running for many years. We know, for instance, uh, that the budget uh, for the Russian intelligence services and particularly for the foreign influence operations today is much greater than at any time during the Cold War. A very large part of that has been focused on the U.S. And we know that it, that operation has been far more successful and far more influential than uh, the Russians ever hoped um, hoped it would be. In fact, I think the Russians expected that they would see some gains through the re-election of Putin. But what we're seeing right now um, with the so-called Putin caucus inside the House of Representatives and the Senate, uh, they're able to command enough votes among Republicans to, be, to have a blocking position. So, uh, you know, we have... 
appropriations for Ukraine. It's 110 days right now uh, that the request has been sitting with Congress. Um, it has been effectively blocked throughout this period of time. We've got Rand Paul um, uh, basically on the floor of the Senate now uh, for more than an hour uh, already, um, you know, trying to filibuster approval of this aid. Uh, as I see, you know, talking to people who count the votes and everything, it looks like it's got 67 votes. So it looks like it will be enacted in the Senate. And it also looks like it'll take approximately another week for that to happen, given all the procedures that have to be followed. But then we're going to come to the House of Representatives, um, where although there's a clear majority in support uh, the the speaker is able to use his position to control what matters come up for a vote and what don't. And it looks right now that uh, Mike Johnson, who, by the way, was elected with the uh, campaign funding support of two Russian oligarchs, it looks like he's going to use his position in his office to block funding for Ukraine. So I think the overall prospects are right now very uncertain. And what does this mean for Ukraine? Um, the uh, the Russians are scoring um, uh, advances all across the front, and they're scoring these advances because the Ukrainians are out of ammunition. They literally don't have the shells and missiles they need to fire back. And that's because uh, what was expected from the U.S. hasn't been delivered. It's been blocked. So people are dying as a result of this. So let's focus then on Russian influence, in particular the weaponization of money via these cutouts that Putin has. Putin regulates the oligarchs, and if you cross Putin, you lose your fortune. And he, they do what he tells them to do. And in weaponizing money, they're obviously putting their money. You just mentioned that two Russian oligarchs in part funded Mike Johnson's latest re-election to the House of Representatives, now, where he's now Speaker. And Rand Paul, who's holding up the money in the Senate, he actually hand-delivered a package, a secret communique from Donald Trump directly to Putin. He literally, uh, Rand Paul, handed Putin in the Kremlin a secret back channel of whatever is in that. We don't know. God knows what was in that package. You know, we've always tried to figure out what, how, to, how does Putin and Trump communicate because Trump is so faithful and such a, a toady of Putin's and he does his bidding and like a lapdog. And it's just extraordinary. So that's amazing. And then you've got another guy in the pro-Putin caucus in the, on the Republican side, J.D. Vance, He's lobbying the House to prevent money for Ukraine. I don't, know, I don't know whether he got Russian oligarchs' money. And then, of course, you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think she's just crazy and stupid, but she's one of the leading proponents of cutting funds. So I don't know whether she's on the Russian payroll as well. Why in the hell can't investigative journalists in this country look into this stuff? Uh, or even law enforcement, I, I, I would say, uh, you know, it is for a foreign government to pay directly or indirectly U.S. politicians to influence their votes in Congress is a crime. It's a criminal act. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 
I don't know uh, the scope of investigations that have occurred, but I know that there was, uh, the FBI did at one point run quite considerable counterintelligence operations looking at this, and those operations concluded that there was a large-scale active um, operation going on, and this operation did, amongst other things, uh, target paying off certain specific politicians. Uh, in fact, I've been told um, that uh, that substantial evidence was collected of a payment of roughly a million dollars being made to Dana Rohrabacher, um, who was uh, formerly a member of Congress who did this about face from being a cold warrior to being suddenly Putin's best friend. I mean, he's one. I think we've got, you know, roughly 30 or 40 members in Congress whose attitudes towards Russia is extremely suspicious. I don't doubt that one could have a real change in attitude post-Cold War about Russia, but for people to adopt this very positive attitude towards Vladimir Putin in the midst of a war in which NATO um, is engaged in supporting a country he's invaded, to me, that is absolutely mystifying. So it's, it can't be um, it can't be aligned with U.S. national security interests as they've been understood for decades. Well, a while back when Paul Ryan was the Republican speaker, he was in a meeting with uh, then Kevin McCarthy. And in that meeting, Kevin McCarthy said, I swear to God, Trump and Dana Rohrabacher are on Putin's payroll, at which point Paul Ryan sort of said, well, let's not talk about that. So, you know, this is, of course, we know now that the guy that you just mentioned, uh, the new Speaker of the House, the good Christian, Mike Johnson, received money from ol Russian oligarchs. Uh, he succeeded, of course, Speaker McCarthy, who, of course, would nowadays would probably deny what he said. But what's going on with these Republicans? Some of them know that, Trump has a suspicious relationship with Putin, but are they just intimidated? I mean, they don't look what just happened with uh, with Senator Rubio in his response to Trump's outrageous remarks about NATO. He weaseled his way out of it, and also uh, Tom Cotton actually agreed with Trump. I, I think you know this cannot be explained as a change in policy orientation by these members of Congress. I think the only way to understand it is to understand the transformation of the Republican Party. So it's shifted from being a traditional political party that formulates a policy and then moves to implement that policy to a cult of personality built around Donald Trump. And I think uh, Republican politicians today understand this is Donald Trump's party. He makes all the rules, and if he's aligning himself uh, with Vladimir Putin, we have no alternative uh, but to either either follow him or be quiet. Uh, and I think that's what we saw over the weekend. We saw very, very few Republicans criticizing the remarks he made in, um, in South Carolina. As best I can see, Nikki Haley did, Lisa Murkowski did, um, but actual current Republican office holders, uh, almost none. So the closest we get to an opposition is from Mitch McConnell, and that's pretty feeble. So what's equally feeble, though, are the Democrats. And for the life of me, except for Jamie Raskin and a few, none of them really 
lay it on the line about what Trump and Putin are up to and the obvious collusion that goes on there. Now, obviously, the Mueller report was sidetracked by Bill Barr and the press don't want to touch it anymore. It's an old story, which is, you know, the typical mentality. But it's not an old story. It's a continuing story and it's getting worse and it still hasn't been investigated. So if the press can't get off the dime and do some investigative jo- journalism in the the weaponization of money via oligarchs to to buy off American politicians to support Putin and his his lackey Trump. Why in the hell doesn't Biden and the Democrats step up and start speaking plainly? I mean, Biden did speak plainly the other day when he was so mad at what the special counsel said about him. But I just don't understand why they don't recognize that this is this is a real hot potato. I, I agree with you completely about this. I, I think, and I've raised this with uh, with a member of the U.S. Senate. I've asked, you know, why um, there isn't um, a much more aggressive tone adopted on this. And what I'm told is, you know, we have to have 60 votes in the Senate to get this measure through. We think we have more than 60 votes. We think we have 67 votes, I'm told. Um, but... Uh, until this has gotten through the Senate and passed, it doesn't serve our interest to make this a political hot potato. Um, it serves our interest to reach hands across the aisle and be sure we've got enough Republican votes to get it through. Um, so that's the explanation we have. Now, I think, you know, I think this dynamic may change as we get more into the um, the, the political campaign season properly. Um, but with respect to the um, uh, for both print and broadcast media, I really think they've fallen down on their jobs. I think uh, there's just too much of a focus on personalities, who made the last gaffe at the last rally, um, who scrambled words. And there's very, very little attention being paid to actual policies and issues that are of consequence to the entire country. And that's on both the security side, the international side, and the domestic side. Well, Scott Horton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great to be with you. And again, I'm speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing how close Pakistan is to economic collapse and civil war after a stinging rebuke to the army's control over domestic politics in the recent election. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Suja Nawaz, a native of Pakistan who has worked as a journalist, a television producer, and a political and strategic analyst. He is the founding director and distinguished fellow at the South Asia Center at the Atlantic Council and the author of Cross Swords, 
Pakistan, its army, and the wars within. And his latest book is The Battle for Pakistan, The Bitter U.S. Friendship and a Tough Neighborhood. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shuja Nawaz. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Shuja. And the elections in Pakistan were quite an earthquake, really. And many analysts are saying the country's even paused for a possible civil war. And it's it's pretty extraordinary the extent to which the military has been rebuked. And as you know, there's this sort of long-standing joke that Pakistan is not a country with an army, but an army with a country. Um, so, what do you make of the fact that the the jailed former prime minister Imran Khan's party, the PTI, won 102 seats, and the party favoured by the military, the Muslim League, headed by former prime minister Nawaz? Sharif came in second with 73 seats. Well, uh, this was quite unexpected. Um, And um, a lot of people didn't take into account uh, the changes in the demographics of Pakistan. So perhaps that that will help explain some of it. Um, First of all, um, it's a very youthful country. And uh, apparently... Imran Khan's message resonated with the youth of the country, many of whom were voting for the first time. Um, They are something like 57 million strong, uh, compared to 46 million in 2018, when he was first elected, uh, reportedly with a lot of assistance from the military at that time. Uh, But he's obviously consolidated his position, organized his party, and used uh, modern media, particularly social media, uh, to convey his message of populism. Well, the extraordinary thing that he did, or that his campaign did, was since he's in jail, he wasn't able to give a victory speech. So they put out an AI-generated deep fake uh, on social media of him addressing uh, his followers. Absolutely. And I wouldn't call it a deep fake because obviously that's what they intended to do. A deep fake, in, at least in my book, is when you're being persuaded that someone is pretending to be somebody else. So in this case, it was Imran Khan's face and his inflection, uh, although it was certainly not his pronunciation because his Urdu is not as beautiful and mellifluous as the pronunciation that uh, the deep fake, as you call him, uh, the AI gen- generated in Brown Khan had in this speech. But it was an excellent uh, method of conveying his message and making it sound genuine. True. I, I, I should have not have characterized as a deep fake because they made it clear that it was an AI generated um, address, right? Yes. So let's talk about why Imran Khan fell out with the military who backed him initially. I understand it has something to do with his latest wife, who has been characterized as kind of a peculiar influence over him, even a sort of sorcerer or something along those lines, that apparently she uh, was his spiritual advisor, who then told him that he had to marry her in order to become prime minister again, and then they arranged for her to get a divorce and paid off her husband, apparently. And this 
irritated the ISI to just just fill me in on this bizarre personal story in the background? Well, uh, a lot of what you said is very hard to prove because this is all behind closed doors, uh, except that, yes, he did marry uh, a lady that was once his spiritual advisor. And, uh, and the, the general rumor was that she had told him that you would only become prime minister if you were married to me. Um, and so the rest, uh, probably broadly along the lines that you suggested, um, there were a number of reasons for the split with the military. Uh, one that uh, has been bandied about considerably is that his then Director General of Inter-Services Intelligence, the Lieutenant General, three-star, named Asim Munir, um, who is, had a reputation for being a very straight Arab, uh, went to him and said, Prime Minister, nor um, uh, household uh, is uh, being abused and misused uh, by your wife, her former husband, his children, and uh, her friends um, for monetary gain and uh, apparently gave him whatever evidence the inter-services intelligence had collected. And he uh, took umbrage at that, went to the then army chief, who was his primary supporter, uh, General Bajwa, the army chief, was told by Imran Khan reportedly that uh, this ISI chief is interfering in my personal life, and so could you please remove him? And so General Badra uh, obliged by uh, removing the then ISI chief and gave him a core command, which is a fairly important position, but uh, that was it. Uh, and so obviously uh, that may have played a role uh, but more important, uh, I think Imran Khan started flexing his political muscle and taking decisions that may not have been in accord with what the military wanted. And so there were differences of opinion. He had a rather whimsical, I would say, Trumpian style of decision making. He, he would change his mind depending on um, who had briefed him last and so on. Um, so there were reports of differences between them. And when the time came for the appointment of the DGISI and a new guy was appointed, um, then, of course, uh, General Bajwa uh, got his extension in service while Imran was still prime minister, which was challenged in the Supreme Court. But that uh, the government prevailed in, in the end. And so he got his second three-year term. <clears throat> when his term was expiring, to Imran Khan's uh, supreme bad luck, the senior-most army officer then in service was General Asim Munir. And <clears throat> by that time, um, the... Uh, Coalition government was in power, Imran Khan having been dispatched through a vote of no confidence in parliament. And the coalition government was headed by Shabazz Sharif, the former chief minister of Punjab and the younger brother 
of former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, who was then in self-imposed exile uh, in London, having been charged and convicted of various crimes and uh, had sort of escaped from Pakistan as a result. And Shahbaz Sharif uh, reportedly sought his brother's counsel, and the brother suggested that the best person as in political insurance against Imran Khan uh, ever coming back to power would be General Asim Munir. And so that's reportedly uh, one of the key factors in his selection as army chief. Now, this is not to downplay his professional capabilities because he was well known in the military as being a thorough professional. But did they arrest him on these charges, which he claims are trumped up? Is it based upon the idea that Imran Khan's being influenced by his wife, who's some kind of female Rasputin, is that what's behind it, or, or are there no. more substantive reasons? There are charges that obviously, some of which have now been substantiated in court uh, in whatever manner, um, involving uh, principally uh, one case of um, contravention of the Official Secrets Act, where uh, a cipher cable that had been sent by the Pakistan ambassador in the United States about a conversation with the Assistant Secretary of State for uh, Central and South Asia, Don Luke, uh, that said that Imran Khan was uh, a bit of a problem and that maybe once he was not there, things would be much better between the two countries. That related, among other things, to Imran's visit to Moscow uh, on the eve of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which was not seen very favorably by the United States. So that was one case, um, and he was sentenced on that. Another case was the abuse of official gifts that had been received by the prime minister uh, and uh, by members of his household that uh, were then acquired from the, the, the treasury um, the Toshakhana, as it's called, the place where the gifts are deposited with the government. But over time, Pakistani government officials have worked out different means of pricing the value of those goods and then giving a certain percentage of the market price um, to the government and taking the goods themselves. Now, in his case, he was accused of having taken the goods at a reduced price from the government and through his wife and her friends, um, selling them. Um, and there were reports of sales in Pakistan and Dubai and other places. Uh, the details kept contradicting each other, but regardless, the government managed to convince the court. And so that was another case. So he has received two or three different convictions on charges of corruption um, that have been... Uh, Syriatim, so that you know he he's going to spend a lot of time in jail uh, if if they they all hold up uh, in terms of appeals. Uh, a total of something like 170 cases have been registered against him. So clearly, this was a well orchestrated uh, campaign 
to uh, remove him from the political scene. Um, members of his party were similarly arrested or picked up, and some of them obviously after being taken into custody uh, by the military intelligence services and others um, were then persuaded to come out and make statements or videos or um, simply announce that they were either quitting the party or quitting politics altogether or taking a sabbatical. Uh, and so the party superstructure was uh, dismantled to a very large extent. So the fact though, that he's all these charges against him and that he's going to be in jail for a long time sort of sounds a little bit like Donald Trump here in the United States where the more they charge him, the more his followers support him. And that seems to be what's happening in Pakistan uh, with uh, the support, growing support for Imran Khan, who's in jail, uh, particularly with the young Pakistani voters, as you said, many voting for the first time. So just in the last couple of minutes, though, Nawaz, let's talk about the serious threat of instability in a nuclear-armed country. How, how would you rate that possibility? The instability is primarily uh, caused by economic difficulties, uh, rampant inflation uh, approaching about 40%. Uh, food inflation is hitting 50%. Uh, and the poorest segment of society, which suffers the most from inflation, spends half their money on food. And so uh, they're, they've been in dire straits. Uh, COVID and then the flood uh, floods that hit Pakistan created a serious problem. In the last year of Imran's government, uh, he spent a lot of money wildly in order to bolster his chances of success in what were then upcoming elections. Um, and so uh, the coalition government then compounded that by mismanaging the uh, exchange reserves as well as the foreign exchange rate of Pakistan's rupee against the dollar, uh, trying to control prices. And um, as a result, um, imports became expensive and many of the exports that relied on imported um, intermediate goods became uh, very costly for Pakistan. So the import tax essentially became an export tax. And then uh, you may recall, we've talked in the past about Pakistan's remittances, uh, which are, were close to $31 billion a year from people all over the world particularly from the Middle East. And um, those started falling and they sort of hit somewhere around $22 billion. Uh, foreign direct investment petered off. The coalition government took some steps at simplifying access to investment in Pakistan, but there's very little domestic investment. And so foreign investors have been chary of putting their money into a country where its own population is still investing in unproductive assets like real estate. So this whole economic situation needs to be dealt with, and it will require a strong government at the center and in the provinces uh, to take some very tough decisions about raising revenue, reducing expenditures, getting rid of um, state-owned enterprises like Pakistan International Airlines and others, 
that are lost leaders. And this all has to be done in order to revive the IMF program that is going to end in March, April. Uh, another billion point two dollars is due to Pakistan if they manage to meet the terms uh, quickly in, in the next few weeks. And then a fresh program will have to be negotiated in order to release additional international money and to raise the confidence of investors in Pakistan. Uh, all this has to be done within the next year or two, and this will be the new government's primary task. So if that doesn't happen, uh, you're going to have uh, a new social contract being negotiated on the streets of Pakistan, because the middle class has been uh, diminished from something like 50 million people to something like 22 million people. And uh, that has not helped Pakistan as an economy either. And uh, you're talking about the need for a, a strong government when it's divided, then the leader of the the leading party is in jail. So not yes. a good look. So I thank you for joining us, Shuja. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Shuja Nawaz, who is a native of Pakistan, who has worked as a journalist, a television producer, and a political and strategic analyst. He's the founding director and distinguished fellow at the South Asia Center at the Atlantic Council, and the author of Cross Swords, Pakistan, Its Army, and the Wars Within. And his latest book is The Battle for Pakistan, The Bitter U.S. Friendship and a Tough Neighborhood. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.